Okay, welcome to our study on 1 Peter. This is our introduction study. You obviously want your Bible open to 1 Peter, but in this particular study, we're going to probably page around a little bit more as we just discuss in general um, the context to the letter, uh, the content of the letter, and, well, Peter. So you can see our study outline if you're looking at the handout. This handout is also found on our website. So if someone wants to, I don't think I have it posted yet, but I'll definitely have it posted later today. Um, if someone wants to follow along or just see what our study is going through, they can go to rockofages-payson.com and, and find it there. So the study outline, introduction to the letters where we're headed today. And then you can see there's 10 parts where we'll be striving to cover at least one part per session will be the goal. And this week we'll, we'll just stick with the introduction. So... We did our opening prayer. Let's jump into our study. Peter in the early church. Number one there. Simon Peter was first brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. The two brothers worked with their father as fishermen at Bethsaida, a town in the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gave Simon the nickname Peter, which is Greek, or in Aramaic could be Cephas, which means rocky. <coughs> So we, we have Peter in English. We also have Rocky in English, right? Peter was privileged, along with James and John, to be part of a close circle with Jesus. So keep that in mind. We'll see that as we read through the letter, too. That meant he was an early insider witness to some special occasions. So can you list at least four of the prominent events? At least four of the prominent events. Cause there's a lot more than that, obviously. From the Gospels, which highlight Peter as participating. So what comes to mind when you think of Oh yeah, Peter was there for that. Mount Transfiguration. Sure, Transfiguration. He took Peter and James and John, sometimes called the Sons of Thunder, sometimes the Sons of Zebedee. So James and John and Peter were the only ones who <coughs> saw, and I remember coming down from the mountain too, it was Jesus saying, don't tell anyone until after I've risen from the dead. Peter wanted to walk on water. Okay, Peter kind of stands out as the sometimes the spokesperson for the, the Twelve. And as they're on the, the boats, he's the one that, Lord, if it's really you, let me come out. So Thomas doubted the resurrection. Peter doubted the, the water walking. And <coughs> he definitely got his sign. Peter denies the Lord three times. Yeah, that's pretty prominent. You'll see Peter is the guy who stands out as denying Christ. That, not that he's saying he doesn't believe in Jesus, but he just doesn't want to be associated with him. And he is uh, highlighted in, in the Gospels <coughs> as an example of someone who struggled with dealing with suffering. And actually, that's going to come up in this letter quite a bit. Dealing with suffering is going to be a, a major theme in this letter. So Peter, the guy who got the inner circle, struggles with suffering. We could keep on going, but I think we listed at least three, right? Yeah. Yeah. Peter cuts the ear off the servant. Yeah. Okay, so you get to that same night where he denied Jesus. He was bold enough to fight for Jesus that same night. So we can see other things that night. Like he was the only one of the three who got to come with Jesus closer as he, he invited them to come with him while he prayed. It's just so often it's... There's the highlight. Peter is in the forefront. Peter's experiencing 
stepping up, doing things that the other disciples maybe weren't bold enough to say or do. So very unique character as far as what we look at, who, who God used, right? Uh, this man Peter and his experiences. So, oh yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. In his early days, it seems like he was a lot like some of us, not me, of course, but <laughs> where you, you do and say things without thinking. Sure, his. You know, that, I mean, that seems to be prominent with Peter. You, you almost picture like James. I know you're surprised, Pat. But, <laughs> 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 but I mean, but that's your human nature, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's mine. I almost picture James the Apostle. He's sitting there writing his epistle. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. And he's kind of like looking over at Peter, thinking, I'm thinking of you, Peter. (laughs) Because Peter would just blurt things out without even... Like when Jesus was telling him about his pending death on the cross. You know, Peter said, oh, no, you know, I'll... You, you, you can't die, but you yeah. get away from me, Satan. There's another great prominent example of <clears throat> Peter at the forefront. And once again, it has to do with suffering, right? So he struggled with Jesus' suffering as Jesus was going to be arrested. He struggled with Jesus' suffering when Jesus was on trial. When Jesus first openly, clearly revealed, I'm going to go suffer and die. Peter said, no, that'll never happen, right? So Peter struggled with, especially out of all the disciples it would seem, struggled with suffering. Even though he would speak boldly about doing things and dying with Christ, he wasn't ready for it. So let's discuss how these events could have helped shape his unique ministry. So take one of those events and how would that have influenced him as he served Christ? Sure, afterwards, as, as he's going out as an apostle, he's, he's serving the church. Maybe, maybe we're thinking after ascension time. Well, after he was reinstated. Sure. When he said, feed my sheep. So he was reinstated. Imagine how that made him appreciate all the more the grace of Christ. He wasn't exactly like Paul, who was going out killing Christians, but <clears throat> he was not the most model disciple who denied his Lord, and yet he was forgiven. So that would definitely influence him thinking of, God accepted me. I'm not a disciple because I deserve it. I'm not an apostle because I'm worthy, but because of his grace. So yeah, grace comes to the forefront with that event. Trust? Sure, trust. Um, maybe if you go to the walking on water event, the don't look at yourself, Peter, right? You know, rely on, on Christ. So he learned trust in God, trust in God's plan. You'll see that in this letter too, where he's going to get into, um, as you even face suffering, you're going to rely on, on God because of his working. Yeah. Sure. So how does being a first-hand witness influence his unique ministry? Yeah. Instead of just saying, well, I heard this happen, you can sit there and go, I was there when I walked on water. Right, so he'll, he'll write in his letter, we, so he's probably referring to James and John, especially when he refers to the transfiguration, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
And he was obviously an eyewitness of the resurrection. When we look at the resurrection account, it's kind of interesting too. He appeared to Peter, independent from the rest of the eleven. So, yeah, Peter was a, an eyewitness to so many things that others weren't, and that comes out in his writing too. To one that is given much, much as we uh, expected, and Peter definitely came to bat. You know, I was an eyewitness. He testified about it. Good. All good points. So those are important things, I think, for us to keep in mind as we read through this letter. Peter's not just, you know, some guy sitting on a high throne that was appointed to be apostle. He had experiences that were very unique, that taught him grace, uh, that taught him what it means to have faith in Christ, to endure suffering. Uh, that's going to influence his letter, and that's the way we really should be looking at him as we read what he wrote here. Uh, number two there, relate the following events and use them to describe the character of Peter. So i got a couple listed there for us. So can you relate Jesus' call of Peter to be a full-time fisherman? What, what happened in that, that occasion? Okay, so the, the call is to be a fisher of men. He's got to leave behind his, his family business, which appears to be a... I guess a, a stable income because they got hired servants and everything. He's able to leave it with his father. So Peter leaves behind his job. It's not like he was some bum on the street that needed to join Jesus so he could leech off of the support or something. He, he left his career to be a full-time fisherman. Remember anything in particular that Peter said at that time? It's not recorded in every one of the, the accounts of it, but one of the accounts mentions something Peter says when he realizes who's in the boat with him. He calls him Lord, and he recognizes the divinity of Jesus. He's already heard Jesus' preaching and teaching up to this point. We know that. Uh, that that's revealed in John's Gospel. He's, he's at this time, a, you could maybe call him a part-time disciple of Jesus, who's, who's discipling with Jesus but not left everything to follow him yet. So at this event, he realizes who Jesus is when he, when he sees the miracle, the great catch of fish, and he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. Right? Do you remember that? So I'm, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When he first gets the, the, this idea that he can summon the, the, the creatures in nature, so what does that reveal about Peter's character? There is humility there, yeah. Even though there's boldness to speak up, he was well aware of his sin and what it meant to be in the presence of someone like Jesus. He was aware that he didn't deserve to be a fisher of men. Go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Kind of reveals, Lord, I, I don't deserve to be with you. So like, like John the Baptist would say, as Peter heard him say, I'm not even fit to untie his shoes. Well, Peter's like, well, if John's not fit to untie his shoes, I'm not fit to even be near him. How about uh, Jesus' announcement that he was going to suffer and die? We talked about that. What does that reveal about Peter's character? He's not going to let him die. He so, want him to die. Loyal. Loyal, certainly, yeah. There were some blinders on, yeah, about Peter's going to write how the, the in the past the prophets searched with careful intent about the sufferings and the glory of Christ. Peter himself 
wasn't searching about the sufferings of Christ. He didn't want to see those parts of Scripture. And so he had some blinders on about what the prophecies said had to happen. But wasn't but like the high priest when he was arrested after the resurrection and everything was preaching, they were, the, the, they were amazed at these ordinary unschooled men, so maybe he really didn't know. That could be too. Peter maybe made it to the synagogue on occasion and he felt guilty about it. He's a sinful man. What kind of lifestyle did Peter have that he you know, felt so guilty in the presence of Jesus or was he just conscientious? But he apparently wasn't very educated. Uh, this guy whose thick Galilean accent gives him away. So yeah, Peter is, uh, he's got a good career and he leaves it all behind. But he's humble and recognizes the dangers of sin. Peter is someone who is loyal to Jesus, but he's blind to what Jesus needs to do, it seems. And kind of with that, too, is Peter's he's in it for the glory. He's not in it for the cross. That's why I, I titled this study From Cross to Crown. Peter struggles with the cross and the glory found in the cross and what it leads to. So that, that changes when he, when he sees what happens with the resurrection and the, has his eyes open to understand the sufferings of the Messiah. So he'll, he'll write about that in his letter that this was prophesied. And you see it in Acts, what God's foreknowledge had purposed would, would take place. So he, he learns scripture, he learns to appreciate scripture and what was revealed. How about the washing of Jesus' disciples' feet? Maybe you can, can you relate that account and how Peter's involved with that? It ends up with him saying, well, well, Jesus, if that's true, you wash everything. But remember at first, he sees, so this was the custom, right? You'd come to someone's house. The lowliest servant would be the one that would wash their feet. They all get to that upper room. This is a significant night. They're in that, that rented or guest space in the, the upper room. All the disciples are kind of looking around thinking, oh, who's going to be the foot washer tonight? Well, shouldn't be me. Couldn't be me. None of them do it. So Jesus steps down, I guess you could say, not steps up, steps down, humbles himself to be the foot washer. And all the disciples are just probably wondering, probably embarrassed, right, that Jesus is doing this. And then Peter comes, or Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet, and what does Peter initially say? Not me. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. That's, that's not your job. So what does that reveal about his character? Respect, lack, trust. Lack of trust, little, maybe. Ultimately, doesn't this also lead to a blindness to the humility of the Christ? That how, how could the Christ ever get so low? It's supposed to be about glory, Jesus. You're not going to suffer, and you're certainly not going to bend a knee and wash anybody's feet. You're the Christ, which he confessed before he even struggled with the suffering that was revealed. So... Yeah, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You're right, Pat. Eventually he says, well, if that's true, Jesus, I'm not clean without you washing. Wash everything. Jesus explains, well, you're clean, Peter. But that reveals both, once again, loyalty and love for Jesus. But he wants Jesus to be this king on a, on a throne that's never going to face any difficulties or humble himself in any way. Well, that's what all the Jews, Jews were waiting for. Right. The, it was a typical... 
get rid of the Romans and let's make life good again. Right. It was a typical mindset that the Messiah would go straight to the crown and didn't see the suffering. So once again, the title of the, the study, From Cross to Crown. And still today, Christians will struggle with this theology of the cross. As kind of really fortify the thought that he was just an ordinary, unschooled man, because that was the thought of everybody, was that Jesus was going to come and just... The common theological yeah. stance of the day was, was Peter's stance, yeah. The next one kind of brings that out too, doesn't it? Remember the we talked about this, the arrival of the guards who arrested Jesus. So just to recount that, you've got you know, the the temple guards and you've got the, the clubs and the swords. Peter sees what's going to happen. He knows Peter knows Jesus said he's going to be arrested. Peter doesn't want that to happen. So what's he do? Glory and battle and victory and battle and I'm going to fight and so once again, it's what we might call a theology of the crown. No suffering, Jesus. Victory alone. And Peter displays that character of, he's unwilling to allow Jesus to be humbled or Jesus to humble himself in any way. Jesus' trial in the courtyard of the high priest. What does that reveal? We kind of take a turn there, but it's the same vein. What does that reveal about Peter, Peter's character? Is He's actually, remember, he's in the courtyard. He can see Jesus. As he's standing by the fireside, Jesus can see him. And so he sees what Jesus is allowing to happen. And Peter has to know that Jesus is allowing this to happen. Because he's seeing what Jesus can do. And he knows Jesus said this was knew this was going to happen. And when he sees all of this taking place, what does Peter show about his character then? Expecting him to perform another miracle. Yeah. If 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 Jesus isn't gonna break free of the guards, or show his power now. I don't know that man. That's not the Jesus I want to know. The one who's suffering and bound. And I don't want to suffer too. So we've been talking about his loyalty, but it's a shallow loyalty. A loyalty that only is loyal to the crown, not loyal to the cross. It's a loyalty that won't follow a suffering Savior. Is that when Jesus was in, in that in the courtyard, isn't that the last time? And he watched um, Peter deny him. It's like the, was it the third time? You got it. So he did that three times. Where I don't, Jesus was I don't. Able to see him. Yeah, and Jesus looked. It says after the, I believe it was after the third time. Jesus looked right at him. And then, then Peter remembered Jesus knew this was going to happen. And his his response. He's a man who struggles. Remember, his conscience bothers him that he doesn't deserve to be with Jesus. He goes out and weeps bitterly. He realizes how he's failed, how weak he is. Uh, he's already found out earlier that night he wasn't able to stay with Jesus and watch and pray. Now he finds he can't even stick with him as he promised he would till death. So the, the character of Peter is the human character. We, we hate to suffer. We struggle with suffering even if it means suffering to follow our Lord. Um, how about now we get after, even after Jesus' resurrection, the character of Peter is, is seen. Remember the, the vision in the book of Acts? He, Peter has this vision of this blanket coming down from heaven with all sorts of unclean animals. And do you remember Peter's responses when he's told to take, kill, and eat? No, Lord, I, I can't do that. 
I've never eaten anything unclean. What does that reveal about his character? Work. Sure. He, following the old, the old... He was, I guess maybe we would say devout, right? So if God says I'm not supposed to do something, I'm not going to do it. So we don't know if that was his fisherman life beforehand, but definitely by this point, Peter is saying, well, he says I've never really eaten anything unclean. So he at least followed the regulations. He considered himself a devout Jew, right? So that does reveal, I guess we could say something positive of his character, but I think, Bill, you're hinting at that can actually become something that overtakes the gospel, right? If you rely on that. So he was a man who was a devout, practicing Jew all his life that never touched anything unclean. Probably started to go to his head a little bit it seems. And that made him struggle with the message of the gospel. And we see that in Paul's letter, uh, especially to the Galatians, that, that Peter caved into good work sometimes. Finally, uh, Paul's rebuke of Peter in Antioch, that's in Galatians 2. Does anybody remember, want to able to recount what happens there? So there's hypocrisy. Peter is okay eating with the Gentiles. He knows God has told him, don't consider unclean anymore, what I would call clean, because the, the mission's been complete, the Messiah has come. You can reach the Gentile people now. But when this faction of Jews comes that insist you have to keep the ceremonial laws, Peter's like, ah, I don't know you Gentiles. I'm going to eat with the Jews and I'm going to stick with them and stay clean. I almost see a, like a combination of works and embarrassment. Like the embarrassment he must have been feeling when he denied Jesus. Well, I don't even know him at all. Being accused of knowing him and then denying it and the way he was so yeah. adamant about it. But it's almost like, and that's something that we find ourselves <clears throat> in a situation where we'll deny him. We won't use the opportunity presented to us to speak up on behalf of Jesus and what he's done for us or over maybe a little person in the crowd or yeah. situation as such. We all do that, I do. We all try to present ourselves in the best light or the most favorable or easiest light we can instead of following Christ and taking everything to the cross. So how is it helpful to know God used a man like him? Now that we've discussed how Peter's character is revealed throughout the scriptures in the Gospels and Acts, we'll see some in his letter too. How is it helpful to know God used someone like Peter? Okay, yeah. That, that is, as Bill was actually just saying on that last point, that's kind of us, isn't it? In many ways, we, we fall into the same temptations. We're guilty of the same struggles and the same failures as Peter, that certainly is helpful. Um, certainly you can look at Paul and say, well, if God can use an enemy of the church like Paul, but there's also God can use someone who claims to be loyal but has his hypocrisy exposed, God can still use and forgive. Yeah. You had a comment too, Martha? No, I just said we're all Peter. Yeah. God uses Peter, he's right. he uses us. So as you'll, you'll see with the other disciples, Peter, he brings out the traits that we should reflect on. And that should <clears throat> help us reflect on God's grace for the times we were blind to the cross and only wanted the crown. 
or the times that we ourselves were unwilling to actually and unable to carry out what we profess to be or to do with Christ. Good. Uh, number three there, Peter often speaks up on behalf of the 12 apostles and actually was reputed as a leader in the early church. We're going to read some to some following scriptures to see what role Peter played in the early church. So if he has this prominent role, what, what exactly shows his, his role and his prominence? We're going to look at Luke 24, 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Acts 15, 6-7, and Galatians 2, 9. Those all speak of how Peter had a, a position of prominence. So it didn't take long. Here ready, we know, was functioning as a spokesperson for the apostles, even by Pentecost. But he continued in that role as a prominent leader and shepherd of shepherds in the church. So that's why you'll see later in his letter, he, he counsels the, the elders of the congregation, the shepherds. He is in a position to be like the first Christian seminary professor in, in many respects. So what does Luke 24, 34 tell us about his position, his role? Anyone that can read that? Mine starts a little ahead of that. It says they come to heaven, and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So the day of resurrection, everybody's excited. He's He's appeared to Mary. He's appeared to the woman on the road. None of the other disciples have seen him yet, but they do know he's appeared to Peter. That's kind of a prominent role, right? To be the to be the first man who was a, a witness of the resurrection. The woman got the honor of being the first witnesses to share the message, we've seen the risen Lord, but he's the first apostle to see the risen Lord. And everybody knew it. That, that had to signify something to them, that Peter was going to be a prominent leader in the church. How about uh, 1 Corinthians 15.5? Or if someone else says Acts 15, we'll look at that next. 15.5 says, and again it's the middle of a sentence, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Yeah, so Paul knew this. When Paul is writing about the accounts of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great resurrection chapter. It starts with, you know, the, this is the most important truth, the witness to the resurrection. Paul lists there, he appeared first to Peter, then to the, the rest of the apostles. Once again, a prominent mention of, of Peter standing out with, as an eyewitness, the first eyewitness. And then you get to Acts 15. This is um, sometimes called the Jerusalem Council. It's really the first ecumenical council where all of the, the leaders in the Christian church were in one place with the unified message and, and getting together to discuss a controversy that had arisen. So who wants to read Acts 15, 6 to 7? Verda? The apostles and the elders gathered people together to look into this matter. After there had been much discussion... Peter stood up and said to them, Gentlemen, brothers, we know that some time ago God made a choice among you 
that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear the message of the gospel and believe. Yeah. Peter is referring to the vision and the, the, the time he spent with Cornelius, but there's a controversy. It, it, they're discussing these matters. You know, what should we, and really the controversy is, what should we require of the non-Jewish people that become Christians? You know, what, what sort of ceremonial laws should we impose on them? And it says the elders are there, the apostles, they're discussing it. And who's the first to prominently speak out? Peter. So this is like a, it's a, a synod, a synodical council where all the leaders of the church are discussing something. And Peter's the first one everybody has to listen to. And he says straight out, God gave me this message. And he sets the course straight, right, as you read on. Okay, and then finally, uh, Galatians 2.9. Paul refers to his early ministry and his conversion and then his early work in the gospel and how he interacted with the church. And he mentions the position Peter had. Remember, his name is also Cephas. So who's got Galatians 2.9? Judy? James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. Yeah. So what role do we see there? Bringing the truth to the Gentiles. Not just, it's not just uh, the Jewish people that would be saved, but uh, the Gentiles get to hear the truth too. Yeah, so as, as Paul's opening his letter to the Galatians, he explains, this is God's calling. And even Peter acknowledges, this is what I'm called to do. While, while Peter would continue to reach primarily the Jews, I would be reaching the Gentiles. But notice, uh, as you look at that, Paul's writing... What title does Peter appear to, to carry at this point? Pillar. Or reputation. He's reputed to be a, a pillar. So a, a prominent man leading the church. So this, this you might say, is the first uh, colloquy, or first time you receive a pastor from outside your synod into your synod. Notice he says we extended to him the right hand of fellowship. Uh, fellowship principles aren't some modern invention of our church body. There's something that's been commanded something that's been practiced in the, the church from the very beginning. Even Paul had to first say, this is what I teach, before Peter would say, okay, let's work together. Let's carry out our, our mission. Here's your mission field. Here's my mission field. But Peter is listed as one of the, the pillars of the church. And that's what we saw in the book of Acts, right? Uh, Peter was functioning as a pillar in the church. So I wanted to cover that before we get to our, our next discussion, that Peter has a, a role. He's recognized as a prominent leader in the church. Jesus made that clear too, not just by his um, resurrection and appearing first to Peter, but also by an incident that, that happened where he referred to Peter's words. And this is a section of scripture about Peter that has been often misunderstood. So before we get into our writing of Peter, we have to understand who is this and I'm going to call him a bishop, because he is an overseer. That, that's what bishop means. Who is Bishop Peter in church history? We've looked at the Bishop Peter, who he is in the, the record of Scripture. right? He's, he's a reputed pillar. He's a, a leader, an overseer in the church. So he's a bishop. But what did church history do with Peter? So that's number one on the next page, on page two. 
Number one, Frederick Douglass was formerly an enslaved man who became a prominent activist, author, and public speaker. He did all this despite receiving minimal formal education. You picture him going from slavery to publishing books and being a, a prominent leader in a movement. Peter the Apostle was similar in that respect. He became a spokesperson for the early church and a pillar in Jerusalem, as we just read. He was indisputably an influential overseer or bishop in the church. He did this despite his lowly, uneducated origin, fishing in Bethsaida. But what type of position did he really hold? When, when we call Peter a leader or a pillar in the church, what was his position really like? We've got to read uh, Matthew 15 to discuss a portion that's often misunderstood. Matthew 15, 16 to 18. So as you read this, this is a, a section that will discuss how has this portion of scripture been interpreted to define Peter's role as bishop? And how would Peter interpret it? And how does scripture interpret it? Which is far more important than the way that some people in church history have interpreted it. Who can read that for us? Matthew 15, 16 to 18. Okay, Verda. Jesus said, do you still not understand? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated into the tree? Is this the right reference? I'm sorry. Matthew. 15. I might have jotted the wrong reference here. It seem to get it. No. no. This uh, study is fresh out of the box. <laughs> and I think I'm supposed to have the next chapter. Yep, Matthew 16. My apologies. So let's go Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. i got to fix that typo there. Like I said, it, it's fresh, so you guys get to help me iron it out. Go ahead, thanks. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Thanks. So this is a, a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus where he's asking, what do, what do people say I am? How about you? What is your confession of me? Peter makes that like he does as a spokesperson of the rest of them, that, that bold, clear confession, you are the Messiah, as it's translated, or the, the, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. So Jesus is clearly proclaimed and identified by Peter, his, his person as the son of God, his office, that is his job as the, the Messiah, is identified by Peter and confessed. Well, since Peter means rock, is this where the Catholics get it? Why, did they claim Peter to be the first pope? 
Yeah, and that, that's what I wanted us to discuss. Is they, they really harp on this section of Scripture because once Peter makes that confession, first of all, Jesus says, that was you didn't figure that out on your own. That was revealed to you. You know, God has to give us his word, enlighten us, open our eyes. Um, that's how we come to faith. No one can confess Jesus as Lord without the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends and by the gospel. But we were misinterpreting what his name means in, in, in this passage. And on this rock I will build my church. Right. So then you get verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock. So what we have here is a play on words, which Jesus does quite often. Uh, so it makes it memorable. He's the one that gave Peter the name Rocky. He knew this, this time was coming. He says, you're Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. So let's contrast how that's interpreted in the Roman Catholic Church with the way the rest of Christianity views Peter's position. What is the position that is attributed to Peter in the, the Roman Catholic theology? Is anybody aware of that? It's... It's actually going to come up quite often because they'll say this is what makes them special from the rest of the Christian church. They say that this verse, verse 18, means Jesus had a plan that the way the church had to be built was only through Peter. And Peter was the first bishop of Rome. And that means the bishop of Rome has to be the one who lays hands on anybody because the church is only built through the laying on of hands traced back to Peter. So therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is the only correct and true church and everybody else is false unless they're under the Roman Church because you have to. Jesus says he's going to build the church on Peter. That's how they interpret it. Okay, so that's the Roman Catholic position. And you don't have to go far into a Catholic theology or the Catholic catechism to see this as a prominent teaching. Because it's what separates them as superior to every other self-proclaimed pastor or bishop in any church. They're not directly descended from laying on of hands with Peter. And Jesus said it would be by Peter that he would build his church. Sounds like a compelling argument, but we've got to look at the context. What is the interpretation of this by the rest of the Christian church? And really, as we'll see, Peter and Scripture. How do we understand this? Well, verse 17, it says... For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father. So if you're going to build anything, it has to be built by God, not by man. Sure. To begin with, divine revelation and everything that takes place doesn't happen because of the, the person of Peter. Peter was just an instrument that received the, the gospel and received the message he would share. So the person of Peter, we see... He's just Simon, son of Jonah. He's blessed because he's got the gospel. Doesn't say anything more, though. What about verse... We've got to focus on verse 18 because that's what they'll, they'll primarily focus on. It says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. <clears throat> do, we, do we believe that it has to be through Rome and the laying on of hands that someone is going to be a part of the true church? Well, yeah. this is this. Messianic Jewish Bible, and, and they use community instead of church. Right. And then they have a thing down here, uh, a reference to it, uh, 618. Uh, Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia, sure. And Hebrew is 
kahal. That's, that's all it says. I sure, they're pulling it. from the, the Old Testament reference for assembly or gathering for church, mm-hmm. and which they translate as community. <clears throat> I think you're, you're getting in the right direction because how do you understand when Jesus says, my church? Um, the way that the Roman Catholic Church interprets my church is a visible entity from Rome. So they're, they're focusing on the visible church. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church says, we are the only true, what you see with the laying on of hands of priests in the, the visible priesthood of descendant back from the bishops to Peter, that is the true visible church. The rest of the Christian church understands, is Jesus really just talking about building a visible kingdom on earth through priests and bishops and basilicas? He's not talking about a visible church, is he? What is the church? Yeah. Uh, Peter's, Peter's only given a confession in which Jesus will build faith, believers. So when, when Jesus is saying, I will build my church, he's not saying, Peter, you're going to start a church in Rome, and that's going to be the only true church. He's saying, Peter, on this rock, what's the rock? Can I understand that too? The confession, yeah, that Peter just said. Peter is masculine, rock is feminine. So you are Peter, it's a play on words. And on this rock, what, what you just said, Peter, that I am the Christ, the Son of God, on that confession, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Not on, he's not saying on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. We know the church is not built on human beings, it's built on Christ. So when we get to Peter's letter, we see him talking about Christ being the cornerstone of the church. When we see Peter talking about you are a temple in which God builds his church, we start to understand Peter's understanding of Jesus' expression, right? You let scripture speak for itself and you let uh, Jesus' word where he says, you are Peter and on this rock stand within context of Peter just making the greatest confession up to this point of the Christ, besides when John first pointed him out. And then, yeah, Peter, the bishop in church history, is kind of a drawn into a history that didn't exist at that point. He was, he was yes, a pillar in Jerusalem, and seems likely he eventually was in Rome for a short while, near the end of his life. But to make him into to this man sitting on a, a throne that says, if I put my hands on you, then you're the visible church, that's never found in Scripture, and that's not what Jesus said here. So the rest of the Scripture or the rest of the Christian church interprets this as Jesus is saying, Peter, Rocky, on on your rock-solid confession, I'm going to build my church, the invisible church, as we call it, right? All believers are going to be built up. And who is a believer? It's someone who confesses Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, like Peter. Not someone who is under Peter's prevalence and the laying on of hands. Um, not to diminish the fact that Peter did, you know, oversee the church or lay on of hands, but that's not what makes the church. The visible church is not the true church. So let's use the following verses from First Peter to discuss which interpretation did Peter support? Did Peter support that he was the first bishop and the visible church would come from him? Or did Peter support that the true church is everyone who confesses Jesus as Christ? 
the invisible church. So look at 1 Peter 2a, where it talks about the cornerstone of the church. And by 2a, I mean the, the first half of 1 Peter chapter 2. So when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, how did Peter understand that? Scan through that first half of that chapter. Yeah, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. And we got to keep in mind um, the, the Hebrew word for temple would be used as you know God's house. And he says a spiritual house. So some translations rightly would put you know God's temple here. Paul talks about us being God's temple. So Peter says, you're being built and you're being built into God's house. Are we literally, you know, like being stacked people on top of one another? No, it's not not the visible church. It's believers make up God's church. So Peter's understanding of the, the church is it's made up of believers who confess Christ. What about the what is the cornerstone of the church? Yeah, it's not some bishop in Rome. The cornerstone of the church is Christ. Uh, not the, the visible foundation of Peter, but the one Peter confessed. So we see very clearly from Peter's letter, he understood Jesus' statement. He wasn't a, a literal physical pillar, but the confession he made would make him a pillar as he shared Christ. Um, let's look at uh, especially verse 9 of chapter 2. Can someone read verse 9 of 1 Peter 2? Okay. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, so we, we often focus in the, the teaching of the, the Reformation about grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Those are, are good. But another prominent teaching that came out of the Reformation was not just the priest alone, but we all are a universal priesthood. Not to diminish the divine call and those who do the, are called into ministry, but all of us bear the title as a, a priest. Peter says here in 1 Peter 2, you are a, a royal priesthood. That is something that is in conflict with the visible laying on of hands. The priesthood is only found through the bishop of Rome and his predecessors, right? Or that you can only be a valid person to approach God if you are a priest that has the visible connection to Rome and Peter. Peter says, no, you, he's writing to the scattered believers, you are a royal priesthood, a holy people belonging to God. So the, the universal priesthood of believers is something that's contrary to the one of the prominent teachings of the, the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they weren't called Peterians or Papa's followers. They were called Christ followers. So the universal priesthood of believers means all of us have access to God. All of us are called to be witnesses of God. All of us can offer up prayers to God. Um, you don't 
want to diminish the fact that we do see God appoints pastors and teachers and does call people into ministry, but all of us have that, that title as a universal priesthood. So that too, it shows Peter's interpretation favors the rest of the Christian church, not the Roman Catholic position. How about 1 Peter 2, verse 13? Someone want to read that? Your pandemic verse, yeah. Certainly an important point um, to apply appropriately and when needed. Who can read that for us? First Peter 2.13. Judy? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. All right, submit to every authority, even the the king as the supreme authority. Does that mesh with the the teaching that the supreme authority on earth is the the Roman papacy? There is what we call a civil authority over the church, right? Even the highest authority in the church, someone like Peter, says submit to the governing authorities. They have a sphere of authority given to them, not in the gospel, but to govern, that we should submit to. And you look at the history of the the Roman Catholic Church where it took authority away from the governing authorities and proclaimed itself over the governing authorities to the point where the the Pope would even put the crown on the the Roman emperor and crown him as if he was the supreme political authority. Peter didn't agree with that. Peter teaches about submission to governing authorities, not the church over governing authorities, but the church (coughs) under God and under his governing authorities. So once again, Peter's view on this position is universal priesthood of believers, the confession of Christ, building the invisible church, and the church has its position as serving God and submitting to authority. This is problematic for me because um, what about, um, you know, in real, in, in, in real time, um, submitting to well, it would have made the American Revolution wrong. Sure. Yeah. One thing, um, uh, resisting the Nazis. In the American Revolution, it does come down to: Are my local governing authorities my new authority, or is the distant authority? But yeah, it definitely becomes a very difficult area. And in Nazi Germany, well. Okay, so you got Nazi Germany. The soldiers <coughs> told you're you're supposed to go and and carry out this order, yeah. So when Peter says, submit to the governing authorities, what qualification still is there? As if they're not sinful? Yeah, if, if they go against God, then you don't submit. And we see examples of that where Peter is told, don't speak in the name of this man. He says, we must obey God rather than men. That doesn't put Peter over the governing authorities, but Peter puts God over the governing authorities. So that's that's what you need to remove that that conflict is, yes, we must submit as far as it's possible, but once the governing authorities ask us to go against God, that's where we have to draw the line. So, But what happens in the Roman Catholic Church is they assume complete authority over the governing authority in church history. And then 1 Peter 5, 3. So you got the role of a leader mentioned in God's church there as Peter gives instruction in 1 Peter 5, 3. So this is the fourth point now. We've looked at three different points. Christ is the cornerstone, what 
the temple, the church that God's building is the invisible church of believers in Christ. There's the universal priesthood, not just you're only part of God's church if you're underneath a specific visible church. And the church should not be putting itself as a political power. And then finally, 1 Peter 5.3. Read it for that one. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Okay, so Peter's description for the, the elders and the shepherds, the pastors in the early churches, don't lord it over those entrusted to you. Okay, well, what happens when you have a visible church where the person had the laying on of hands is suddenly infallible to many degrees and is supposed to be able to cover up scandals and do everything and they're in charge and you're supposed to submit to them without questioning anything because they're lording it over you. Does that fit with Peter's theology of a, a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop? No. So though um, church history has had the Peter of church history lording it over others, the, the bishops of Rome, asserting power over all the other bishops, and asserting power over the, the people around them. The Peter in Scripture says, not lording it over them, but serving, <clears throat> eager to serve. So I just I thought that'd be an important study, because if you ever look at the Peter of church history, he has been turned into a almost a, a tyrant sitting on a throne saying, it's only through Rome that you can really be saved and through the laying on of hands and through this visible kingdom. But the Peter of Scripture is the one that says, no, it's only through confessing Christ, that rock, the confession, uh, that you are built as a living stone into the church, the temple of God, and all people have access to God. You don't have to go through your priest to access God. Um, you can confess your sin directly to God. It doesn't have to be through a... a it can be, you know, through a, some father confessor or a Christian friend or pastor, but you can confess your sin directly to God. You're a universal priesthood of believers. And the government <clears throat> should stand. The church shouldn't try to position itself as a governing authority. And finally, leaders in God's church should be humble, not lording it over. Um, I, I can't forget the time when I first went shopping for liturgical vestments and this guy was... I am a bishop. Can you believe they made me a bishop? And he just kept mentioning that. You know, I was only there for like five minutes picking out you know, and getting sized up. And he's like, they made me a bishop. Uh, that's you know, a prestigious role in the church where he would be in charge of other churches. And Peter says, not lording it over the church. All right. Maybe he was just really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That may well be. So uh, but, you know, the... The idea that you would be just appointed over someone without their, their willing consent, which maybe there was, but still, the, the way it's been portrayed throughout history has not been um, one of very humble position. All right, major themes. This letter is clearly Christ-focused. Uh, so as you look through First Peter, you're going to see he keeps getting back to the cornerstone, to Jesus. He's the focus. He's the focus. It offers gospel-driven comfort for suffering believers. So that's going to be a theme. As believers suffer, Peter's going to offer them comfort. Point them to... Some people call it the letter of hope. He mentions hope so many times in this letter, even as you suffer. And gospel-driven guidance for new and holy living. 
So yes, Peter's concerned about holding on to Christ as you suffer, but also what kind of life you're going to live. Is it going to be one to give glory to God and, and follow his will? But always when he talks about holy living, it's, it's driven by the gospel. It, uh, this letter directs us to the power of the word and the saving power of water in the word and baptism. So Peter is going to focus on the means of grace. He's going to talk about the word that made you born again, that gave you life. He's also going to talk about, Peter says twice in his letter, he says baptism saves you as he gets to describe uh, the washing with water through the word. Uh, we'll see that in First and Second Peter, this focus on the means of grace uh, that Peter gives us. It offers guidance for husbands and wives, so we'll see that. Uh, remember, Peter actually was, even if you're going to call him the first pope or bishop of Rome, he was, in fact, married. And he gives guidance to husbands and wives. It, it focuses on both Christ's humiliation and exaltation. So once again, bringing us back to our, our, our study focus from cross to crown, Peter will bring in over and over again the humility of the Christ, but he never leaves it there. It leads to the, the exaltation of the Christ. Martin Luther considered one of his favorite letters. Uh, so I know he mentions, I think, Galatians is his favorite, but he mentions Peter among one of his favorites. Let's uh, just scan through the letter before we finish today, since we have a, I think we have a little bit of time, right? Let's scan through before we finish, and let's identify what you can find about the following themes. So as you scan through 1 Peter, what do you see about the Word of God? What do you see about suffering? What do you see about hope, the resurrection? And what do you see about holy living, that is submission, humility, and love? So if, if you're uh, listening on on the recording, I'm going to probably stop the recording for a little bit here and pause it. You can pause it if you want for however long you might want. But I'm going to give our group here a minute or two to scan through the letter. And we're going to be looking at the themes. It's in your handout. The Word of God. What do you see about that? What do you see about suffering? What do you see about hope? That is, you know, what's to come in the future. What do you see about the resurrection? That's a reoccurring theme as well. And finally, holy living or sanctified living. So I'll pause the recording and we'll take about two or three minutes. Just see what you can find about these themes. Okay, taking uh, two or three minutes to look at some of these themes. What did we find? 1 Peter 1 verse 25 says, The word of the Lord stands forever. Yeah, so right in chapter 1, verse 25, The word of God stands forever. So there, there's a focus as he, he starts out on the word of God. Good. Someone have another one? Yeah, Verda? Um, since you've purified, in 20, you've purified your souls by obeying the truth, which would be from the word, yeah, so the, the word is called truth. So the identifying, describing God's word there. And 2-2, two, two, the pure word, word, pure milk of the word. Yep, so we're finding chapter 1, he really does talk a lot about, the focus is on the means of grace, the, the Bible, the word of God, the pure word of God. Good. 2-8-B, because they continue to disobey the word, Good, yeah. So that, that's going to be a theme coming up in his letter. Uh, the Word of God, we'll see that. Someone have a, another theme? Suffering. Suffering. 
Okay. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as issue, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the suffering of Christ. Yeah, so suffering comes up. You see chapter 4. Don't be surprised. There's a fiery ordeal, he calls it. And then he relates to sharing in Christ's suffering as you follow, take up your cross. So suffering is going to be a theme. Yeah. 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. There's the be revealed in the last time. And this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So you got both suffering and the resurrection. When you know Christ, who's resurrected, will be revealed. There's there's future hope, there's there's suffering. Uh, even, as I mentioned earlier, the theme that it's, it's Christ-focused, right there in chapter, 1 Peter 1, verse 5 and following, all those themes come up at once. Suffering, hope, the resurrection. We'll see. Uh, we just, we're out of time today, but we'll see also. Peter does talk about the word of God, conversion, the power of the word, enduring suffering, our future hope, Christ's resurrection. He's also going to touch base on, well, what about right now? as you suffer, holy living, uh, sanctified life, driven by that, that gospel, the future glory promised in Christ and grace. So those will be themes that will be coming up in First Peter. Um, if you're listening to the recording, there's a, a handout, as I, I mentioned, on our website. On the margin, you guys noticed there's some notes about First Peter. I'll have, you know, to me they're interesting. They don't really have anything to do with our main discussion points, but they're just notes about First Peter that you might find interesting in the, in the side margin. And maybe if, as we have time, we might touch base on those on occasion. But you'll find extra stuff on the handout there on, on page one and two on the left side. Why don't we close with a prayer about what we studied. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear the, the words which you've conveyed by your spirit, uh, the words long preserved for us, passed on to the believers through Peter. The, the servant, the one who gave the, the bold confession, the one who is reinstated to serve you in grace. Bless our time as we go forward in this letter and find the focuses on Christ and the, the comfort and the hope and the resurrection glory that is to come as we go from cross to crown. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.